Welcome to The Medical Republic, a podcast for curious GPs. I'm Penny Durham. I'm talking to Associate Professor Ian Mackay, a virologist at the University of Queensland, who's been tracking the SARS-CoV-2 virus and tweeting about it diligently since it first appeared in December. Professor Mackay, welcome. Thank you. Um, well, first a disclaimer, obviously we're smack in the middle of this, so we, we know some things and we and there are others that we don't know and there are some things that may change. And we're recording this on Monday, February 17, which is about six weeks-ish since the novel virus was discovered. And so far there have been close to 70,000 reported confirmed cases and nearly 1,700 deaths, all but four of the deaths in mainland China. So there's always one person who says, but the flu kills way more people, so why are we so worried about this? And it's true that there have been 14,000 flu deaths in the US alone over this winter. So why does the discovery of a new virus have the power to, well, effectively slow down the global economy? Fear probably is one of the biggest single driving factors here, but also because realistically this virus is something humans haven't seen before, so we probably don't have any immunity. We do have immunity to flu. We have all sorts of different immunity to flu because we've been infected from childhood onwards. We've, in some cases, been vaccinated. So we have a lot of stuff that may protect us from severe disease. For this novel coronavirus, we don't have that sort of immunity to protect us. So the risk is that it will travel around the world quite freely, as we've seen it doing quite freely in the megacities in China. And even at a very small percentage of potential death, that could scale up uh, because of the number of people infected to be quite a large number of people dead. So there is a real reason to be concerned, certainly. There's no real reason to panic because that won't change anything, but to be concerned about this virus just because it's so novel. Yeah. And so we have other coronaviruses floating around. There are four that cause, you know, common cold symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then there were two other novel coronaviruses in the past decade. So this one's called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS-CoV-2, SARS the sequel. In, in what respects is it like SARS-1 from 2003 and how is it different? And is it different enough that we have no, no functional immunity to this new one, even if we were exposed to the old one? So I said before that we had no immunity. I guess we haven't actually done the test to prove that yet, but the assumption is that it's different enough, it is genetically different enough, and the modelling suggests uh, its proteins will be different enough that we may not have any pre-existing immunity based on those other coronaviruses, the common cold coronaviruses. Uh, Similarity-wise, we do know that the disease, the severe disease, is not that too dissimilar. It's acute respiratory distress syndrome in among the sickest of the people that can lead to multi-organ failure. And so there are some similarities with SARS-1, if you like, but also there are some significant differences. We seem to see shedding of the new SARS-CoV-2 virus from people who aren't very severely symptomatic, so they can have milder disease and perhaps still be infectious. That's different from SARS, and that's probably why we're seeing cases uh, build up much more quickly than we saw with SARS. There's also this uh, period of the infectious period for how long people can be Uh, incubating and for how long they may be shedding virus. And we still don't know that really perfectly yet, but we know that it's a bit different from SARS, which means it's going to be harder to stop this virus from spreading compared to SARS, which we locked down and basically SARS-1 is now an extinct virus. Mm. And so it's the actual, the mild form of the disease, which is causing it, the problems, which is causing it to be a much more effective spreader than the first one. Absolutely right. And we 
we have seen some stuff around asymptomatic infections possibly being able to shed virus, but we don't know for sure yet. We haven't seen evidence to prove that that is happening. It wouldn't be hugely surprising if it did happen to some extent, but it's more likely that very sick people are the ones that will be shedding most virus. Yeah. And um, that British super spreader, the uh, poor guy who's had his face all over the news, uh, he claims that he had mm. no symptoms when he infected uh, multiple people. But that's been one of the little controversies of this uh, virus. And another one has been the transmission route. Have we sorted that out yet? Do we, we still don't know yet whether it can be aerosolized or if it's droplet We don't know for sure. We don't know. That's right. We don't know whether it's droplet transmission or there could be an airborne component. We assume based on our history with coronaviruses and other respiratory viruses that it's most likely droplet droplet driven as the main route. So even if there is some airborne component, it's probably less of a major transmission route than people coughing out lots of virus and wet droplets that cover surfaces that we also self-inoculate ourselves from or touch our faces after we've touched the mm -hmm. contaminated surfaces. That's really the most likely major route of transmission. And while the other, the four endemic coronaviruses target the upper respiratory tract, hence you get you know, your usual cold symptoms, um, this infects the lower respiratory tract or, or the lungs causing pneumonia and also some GI involvement. And that's all to do with the which receptors the virus binds to. Is that the same as the previous SARS, the ACE2 binding? Correct, same receptor. Interestingly though, those four what we call endemic coronaviruses, the human coronaviruses, one of them uses the same receptor. That one's called HCOV NL63. And NL63 also uses ACE2. And funnily enough, is associated with more than just common colds. It's quite strongly associated with croup or laryngotracheobronchitis. Bronchitis. That's a mouthful. So uh, while they mostly cause common colds, coronaviruses that we already have among us all the time every winter can cause things as bad as pneumonia as well. It's just not quite as common. And we may, we don't know this yet, but we may be seeing an insight there uh, for this novel coronavirus. It may be that that does a similar thing that we've only seen, though, reported the worst end of the spectrum. The, the other novel coronavirus, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, uh, that one attacked the kidneys, I believe. There was kidney issues, but it does, again, have quite a widespread receptor. Um, so that virus also causes quite a spectrum of disease from asymptomatic infections through to death uh, and a lot of stuff in between. It does also seem to prey on those who have underlying disease, and that's kind of similar to SARS-CoV-2 as well. It seems to be an opportunistic virus that does most of its damage in those who already have some pre-existing condition. Right. Kidney issues, heart issues and lung issues featured with MERS, and they do seem to feature at least not so much the kidney, with the new SARS-CoV-2 as well. Right. And MERS was like highly lethal, killing almost 40% of patients, but it was not very transmissible. Uh, the first SARS only killed about, I think, 10%, but it was transmitted more easily. And this is, again, seems to be less fatal, but more transmissible again? Even though SARS-CoV-2 is more transmissible and doesn't necessarily kill the same percentage of people, we're going to see a lot more people infected because of that transmissibility change. And that might mean that the numbers of people that could potentially die could still be quite high. Certainly, they have already surpassed SARS-CoV, the original. What's the best estimate of the basic reproduction number or the average transmissions per patient? Around two to three, but there have been some higher numbers creeping out. It really does depend on what group we look at, whether we're looking at those with severe pneumonia who do seem to have more virus uh, or those who have milder disease. Internationally, the number seems to be a little bit smaller, um, or quite significantly smaller, I think. Whether that's because people are 
quickly isolated and quarantined compared to what's happened in China in the early days or not could be argued, but that's probably most likely what's happening. Mm. And there's been some modelling, um, mathematical modelling of um, the progress of this disease, which have been widely published, that suggested it'll infect two-thirds of the planet. Is, is that a bit wild? No, not at all. Uh, they're models, so they're, they're based on the data to hand. And those numbers are a little bit wobbly and a little bit flexible still because most of them are coming from China and it depends how they report the disease and how they're diagnosing, and that's changed quite frequently. So the models are the best that we know at the moment. So that's our understanding of what will happen with this virus in a population that doesn't have any immunity to it. That could all change because they're models, but equally, it could also be spot on. So we need to plan for what could likely happen based on what those models are telling us. Yeah, that's a pretty scary um, figure. But so if you do it get uh, if you do get uh, COVID nineteen, which is the name for the disease, what factors determine whether you'll get a mild version or a severe version that could be fatal? That's it's not entirely clear, but among people that have ended up in ICU or gone on to die, uh, the the presence, I guess, of an underlying disease seems to be quite common and, and as does um, slightly older age. So I think those are the groups to look for as being at the higher end of the risk scale for now. Beyond that, we're still looking and learning about what might be involved in how the virus is transmitted, and that might give us some indication of how uh, disease progresses. So there's age and there's comorbidities, but obviously you know, some young people have also died most prominently Dr. Li Wenliang, who raised the alarm and was detained for it. Yes, absolutely. So probably in his case and cases like that among healthcare workers, they're seeing not just a one-off contact with a known case, but possibly frequent contacts with multiple mm. cases. So they'll be building up a fair bit of a virus dose over time. And that may have a uh, some role in the progression of disease. More virus per dose or more frequent doses could mean disease progresses more quickly or to a more severe state, or it may mean that there's more risk of the virus getting delivered straight to the lungs rather than the upper respiratory tract, because there clearly is virus replicating not just in the lungs, but in other sites in the body as well. And a number of teams around the world have been sequencing the virus, uh, including Professor Dominic Dwyer at Westmead here in Sydney. And uh, he alone or his team found eight variants. Um, what's the significance of the eight variants? Is that that it's mutating rapidly or does that re represent multiple jumps from the source to humans? Um, it probably represents that there have been cases in different parts of the world and those cases have spread. Um, I, I really can't speak to exactly what his results are, but yeah. it's likely those little geographic pockets. There hasn't been wholesale change to the virus as such, so those variants may not yet mean anything in terms of clinical severity or transmissibility or anything important like that, but there'll be genetic variants that are interesting to track from a point of view of where the virus is in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And everyone's been working really hard uh, on containment, including through quarantine, um, including <laughs> quarantine that's looking increasingly harsh for the people on the Diamond Princess, which is now up to 355 confirmed cases, starting from one case. Um, people are getting rescued now, but what do you think of the, the ethics of keeping people in that sort of situation where they seem almost uh, inevitably going to get infected? I'm not a bioethicist and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm only partially qualified to talk about this, but I think keeping people in a site like that with lots and lots of surfaces on which virus can be shed, where air can be uh, kept I guess close, where people are in close contact sharing the same air for periods of time, perhaps even the same toilets and facilities, 
is not the best way to have dealt with this virus. It would have been better to get these people out into facilities purpose-built for isolation and quarantine as soon as possible rather than leave them on a ship with people um, already infected among them and, and with no real idea of who was and wasn't carrying the virus and shedding it. Yeah, it's definitely not going to be a holiday to, well, it's a holiday to remember, but for all the wrong reasons. Um, so even if, despite all these containment measures, if they fail, is this likely to become another endemic coronavirus? My opinion is it will be an endemic coronavirus. I think the, the work that China has done with these unprecedented large community-wide uh, quarantines and, and isolations are fantastic, and they've definitely slowed the virus spread internationally. Great for us, maybe not so great for China, but I think there's still so many cases and this virus is so transmissible that it will probably be something that we see remain among us forever and it'll probably become another one of our coronaviruses that we call a human coronavirus down the track. And health officials around the world have been very reluctant to criticise any aspect of the Chinese government's handling of the crisis, but there has been some criticism from other sources of the speed at which um, the government initially acknowledged the outbreak. Is, is there any fairness in that? I really don't know exactly when these first cases occurred. We've seen published that the first cases occurred became ill on the 1st of December. Uh, if there were cases of human disease before that, that hasn't been published, so I'm really only going to go off what has been in the literature. Those cases were jumped on very quickly and linked to being a cluster of probably viral, not bacterial pneumonia. Uh, they were uh, studied. The virus was isolated, sequenced in absolutely record time of about 11 days once it was uh, publicly reported that this was happening. I think that part of the work was fantastic. What happened before that, though, is probably something we still need to know about, to know how long that virus had been circulating among humans beforehand. But even so, this happened during flu season, pretty much peak flu season. A lot of disease that was very similar would have been masking these pneumonia cases. So I'm not really sure that any uh, public health system in the world would have picked up this virus, isolated it and sequenced it any faster than what China has done. Mm. In any case, it's, um, it's a scary story, but it's also been fascinating to watch the response unfold in real time and all, all the knowledge acquisition that's happening so fast. Absolutely. It, it's far too fast to keep up with, really. The literature <laughs> that's coming out, and especially the use of preprints this time, which is something mm. new to an emerging virus outbreak, has just meant an overwhelming amount of information that is almost impossible to keep up with, but also, as the, the WHO said, an infodemic, but also an overwhelming amount of uh, rubbish information of conspiracy theories. Those tinfoil hat-wearing people have really come out of the woodwork. Usually they'd love to talk about vaccines, but now they've come out to really try and disrupt, uh, I guess, the community's feeling of any type of safety. And in, they've introduced a lot of fear in doing that and a lot of anxiety that probably didn't need to happen at all. Uh, so it's pretty irresponsible, but it's up to the big public health figures, those who are trusted, uh, to come out and combat those sorts of rumours. And things like the WHO's FAQ uh, and Mythbusters pages have been useful for that, but we could probably do a bit better than that, I think. Well, Professor Mackay, it's terrific. You've been on this non-stop. You must be exhausted. So thanks very much for coming on our podcast. Thank you very much.